Hello and welcome to The Lancet Podcast. I'm Richard Lane on Friday, September the 12th. Today is a historic day, 30 years since health and policy experts gathered in a Kazakhstan city called Alma-Ata to formulate what became known as the Alma-Ata Declaration. This week's issue of The Lancet is dedicated to this anniversary and to explain what Alma-Ata was and is and will be all about in the future, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Joy Lorne, who's a research advisor for the Saving Newborn Lives Initiative, part of Save the Children, and I spoke to her earlier on the line from Cape Town, South Africa. I started by asking her to take us right back to tell us more about Alma-Ata, what it was then, and more importantly, where we are now and where we're going in the future. Well, Alma-Ata was a little place in the Soviet Union, which has now been renamed as Alma-Ata in Kazakhstan. And 30 years ago, this week was a historic declaration. Uh, The context of that declaration was historic in that it was the first time the heads of WHO and UNICEF had come together with a wide range of country governments. But even more historic than that was the radical content of this declaration. And the declaration was a major global shift in both the concept of health, but also for public health particularly. And the shift came both in how health was seen, not just as an absence of death, but as a positive, holistic concept of health, putting the public into public health such that uh, all uh, people should be reached, a a concept of universality, but also the need within that to look at health promotion, not just treatment of disease. So moving from large teaching hospitals being the focus of health to promotion in communities, which was a very radical concept. It may be something we take for for granted now, the preventive and promotive aspects, but that really uh, became a global concept at the time of Alma-Ata. And that was not only radical, but also relevant because of the huge burden of disease among the poor that could be averted by preventive and promotive interventions. And that's not just a relevance for 30 years ago, but it's a relevance today. So today we see that many of those old conditions still persist, that while in that 30 years we've made progress in increasing life expectancy dramatically, in reducing particularly child mortality, dramatically, we still have massive inequities between countries and also within countries. This isn't just something that's relevant for rich, for poor countries, but also in rich countries we have pockets of populations with very high inequity in their health indices, as well as those old conditions that have persisted and the inequity that is still there. We see new conditions. HIV has come and is largely a condition of the poor. So this declaration remains relevant and radical still today, 30 years later. Thanks very much, Joy. And you've already touched on this, but how would you just encapsulate really what we've learned in the past 30 years since uh, the inception of Alma-Ata? Well, in that 30 years, what we have seen almost is a, a full cycle of starting out with a hugely comprehensive and very ambitious goal. So health being a holistic picture, which was visionary but not very measurable, and communities participating and being in control of their health and promoting health, which was a a wonderful vision that in in many ways was split and fragmented by global policy almost straight away into uh, lots of dichotomies. Alma-Ata really stressed the linkages between health and the non-health sector, education, water and sanitation, 
And very soon into that 30-year time period, we were splitting health from development. We were splitting a comprehensive approach and really, particularly with many of the global funding agencies, looking at a very selective vertical approach of delivering a certain number of interventions in a very manageable way. And that became a conflict, a kind of vertical approaches versus horizontal approaches. And over that 30-year period, particularly in the last few years, we've come to the conclusion that that fight wasted a lot of time. There's a lot to be gained from the so-called vertical selective approach. There's a lot to be gained from the comprehensive approach. And it appears that the countries that have made the most progress have been able to start with some selective uh, aspects and build to a much more comprehensive approach over time. And so in some ways, the global policy debate, uh, putting dichotomies of choices in front of countries may have slowed progress. There have been other more specific dichotomies at times. There have been debates between uh, progress for mothers versus progress for children, which looking at a holistic picture of family seems ludicrous, but has also had an effect at the global level. So in moving forward in what we learn from this 30 years, one of the key messages is to get past these dichotomies, to look at an integrated approach moving over time consistently to build primary healthcare systems that link these key aspects, mothers and children, chronic diseases which has been left out and many other important aspects rather than setting them up as dichotomies against each other. And what would you say, impossible question really, but what's the kind of current report card on how countries are doing and there's bound to be a huge divergence and variation when you compare countries. Just give us some examples of how Alma-Ata has worked at a country level. Thank you Richard for that question and this is one of the papers in the series Rodi et al really set out to look at this because progress at global level in many ways is broad brushstrokes of policy, but what really counts is have things changed in countries? Have primary health care systems been, been built? But even more importantly, have outcomes changed? Not just outcomes in uh, coverage of interventions, but in terms of lives saved. And this paper had two different analyses. One was, was looking at over and underperforming countries for progress in uh, improving life expectancy over this 30-year period compared to their gross national income. And what we can see is there are a, a number of countries that despite very low gross national income have made considerable progress, particularly those that have had dramatic falls in child mortality. In this analysis, uh, 30 countries were selected based on their rate of progress for uh, reducing under five mortality. And to get into that, really, you have to have had consistent progress over the last 30 years. So countries that have made rapid recent progress, such as, as Tanzania, are doing well, but weren't in this top 30. And in fact, this top 30 is largely countries from Southeast Asia and, and Latin America, some from Central Europe. And there are only two African countries in this top 30, Malawi and also Eritrea, which isn't often highlighted as a success story. But the country that came out top out of this top 30 is Thailand. So Thailand has managed an average annual reduction in under five deaths of 8.5% for the last two decades, which is remarkable, especially considering their gross uh, national income per capita is still extremely low at under 4,000 and when they started 20 or 30 years ago was really a very, very low income country. And they've achieved that through a, a number of strategies. One key thing is even when politicians have changed at the top, there's been consistent health policies. 
they started with what they had, really trying to use community volunteers and very much on the promotion side and gradually built up immunization coverage, selective care, and then rapidly moved to increasing skilled attendance at birth, which we used in this paper as, as a marker of a comprehensive primary health care system. And in fact, Thailand now have universal coverage of skilled attendance at birth and was one of the few countries we looked at with no measurable difference between rich and poor families in use of skilled attendance at birth, which is remarkable. And since 2001, they've had a, a universal uh, health insurance coverage policy, which has made a big difference too in, in accessing care for the poor. So that's Thailand that came out top out of this 30. And I think Malawi is also important to highlight because one of the messages that came out of these top 30 countries is while we always talk about good governance being important for progress in health and Clearly, it helps, particularly in more rapid progress. Out of these top 30 countries, at least half of them have major constraints. So Malawi still has a, a per capita income of only $170, which is remarkable. They have an HIV prevalence of 14%, which is extremely high, and yet they've still managed to sustain this progress. And they only have about five national pediatricians in Malawi, and one of the key reasons for their progress has been that they have delegated a lot of tasks to mid-level workers and extension workers who are responsible for keeping immunization high and also providing um, a lot of, of uh, basic curative care such as TB and rollout of antiretrovirals for adults as well. So I think out of these 30 countries, there's much more detail in the paper, but there's a, a lot of lessons to be learned and lessons to be learned not just for countries where we think the governance is perfect, but also for countries that are struggling. For example, Haiti is in this 30 countries and obviously has had many problems with governance and has a very high ranking for corruption on, on um, Transparency International's Corruption Index and yet has managed to make progress partly through widespread use of non-governmental organisations. Joy, the series talks about integrated interventions and district health systems. What are these and how can they improve primary health care within Amarata? Thank you. That's a very important question because if we just talk about global change or we talk about national change, getting down to the real nitty-gritty of how primary health care systems work is a key issue. And one of the important changes over this 30 years that's highlighted within the series is the complexity of intervention. So as journals like The Lancet produce more and more papers, the plethora of evidence that is coming out there, the more science introduces interventions and the more standards rise, the more pressure there is on primary health care and that applies whether it's a general practitioner in the UK or a, a mid-level health surveillance assistant worker in, in Malawi. The list of tasks is tremendous and one of the papers in this series, Buta et al, very much focuses on what the evidence is for an essential package he looks particularly at the essential package for maternal, newborn and child health care within these high mortality settings. But many of the messages are relevant globally. How can we look at an essential package and start with that and then add to the complexity of that package? How can we look at integrated delivery systems for uh, providing these? 
both to increase the efficiency of the delivery system, but also to improve the services for the client, that they aren't having to come back for a separate postnatal visit for the mother versus an immunization visit for the child versus a family planning visit elsewhere. And so these are key issues, but what is an astounding finding out of this paper is also the lack of empirical evidence there is for integration of interventions. We have evidence for single interventions, but testing in effective packages is extremely limited. And then if we take these packages of essential interventions integrated together, how are we going to deliver them? And within the health system context, the key issue is a district health system. So your district hospital um, and the feeder primary health care clinics and, and units that feed into that and then reaching out into the community system with outreach and community health workers and a two-way flow of, of supervision um, and supplies uh, and data and information and communications that enables that system to work well. And the paper with uh, Lillistrand and colleagues particularly highlights the importance of the district healthcare system, how that can be integrated and move forward, not just for maternal, newborn and child health, but also important issues such as HIV, TB for adults and chronic diseases. And they highlight a number of really successful countries. So Tanzania has a remarkable tool that's used at district level to help prioritize uh, what is the local burden of disease in that district and how can the spending and prioritization of investment be ranked according to the local burden. Thanks, Joy. And in the couple of minutes remaining, can you just touch briefly, you have mentioned it once earlier on in the interview, that the issue to do with the, the gap in chronic diseases, something we know about at The Lancet, we've run series on chronic diseases, and how that's, if you like, a barrier to progress within Alma Arta. If you could just touch on that and then just sum up by saying, you know, what's the future in, in terms of the whole, if we're doing Alma Arta now, starting it now in 2008, what are our priorities in the sort of short, medium and long term? As we have already highlighted, chronic diseases is an increasing burden. Uh, the Lancet had an excellent series on this, looking at hypertension, diabetes, cardiac disease and so on. And indeed, HIV and TB are becoming chronic diseases as we improve our rollout of antiretroviral treatment. And I think what's interesting about this paper within the primary healthcare series context is the need to shift the focus within primary health care to be able to incorporate and integrate chronic diseases and how does that work in practice and many of the practical issues that would be raised in doing that and also the increased workload that's not insignificant. And in terms of, of moving forward, I think we have many lessons learned both at global level and in country level, both positive of what has worked and also negative of what hasn't worked. It's clear that Alma-Ata principles are more relevant than ever, that some of the key things that came out of Alma-Ata, the move to health for all goals, which were the precursor of today's Millennium Development Goals, the concept of reaching all and how that has become a very powerful vision in today's world and indeed has garnered a lot wider political commitment and certainly vastly more financial resources than the original goal were able to garner. I think today we're faced with a challenge. We have still the relevance and importance and an agenda that needs to be addressed we have greater potential possibly to be able to address that today than we did 30 years ago. And that also leads to greater accountability, what should be done in the short term, medium term and long term. Clearly in the short term, the goals of, of the Millennium Development Goal target is only seven years away now, which is short term. 
we have to focus on making that work, and those are mainly mortality goals rather than health goals, then we still need to focus on the 20-year, uh, half-decade goal for, for Alma-Ata plus 50 instead of plus 30. Where will we be by then? Will we have really made a difference for the very poorest countries that are being left behind, these countries that face particularly conflict, high HIV and very overburdened primary health care systems? Can we make a difference there? And I think there's also a call to go back to the innovation of the early days of primary health care, much more innovation in delegation of tasks, more innovation in, in basic drugs and essential drugs list and getting those out. We need more innovation on basic equipment so that we can deliver these essential interventions. And clearly we also need more empirical data, particularly on integrated primary health care packages in different contexts, how to adapt those, how to work with different cadres of worker, how to make that district health systems work. It's it really an outstanding finding that there was a, a lack of large-scale data on these key issues for the core of making primary health care work as we move forward. Dr Joy Lorne on the line from Cape Town in South Africa. Pleasure to speak to you and thank you for giving us such a, a great overview of the series. Uh, obviously what we want listeners to do is to now go away and read the mini-series we're publishing in The Lancet this week plus related original research articles and an editorial as well. Thanks very much indeed for talking to The Lancet. My pleasure. Thank you Richard. Many thanks to Dr. Joy Lorne for contributing to this special Alma Arta podcast for The Lancet, linked to the issue of September the 13th to the 19th, 2008. Much more next week. Thanks for listening.